What's up, what's up, what's up, ITT Familia? It's Maria Hinojosa. And Julio Ricardo Varela. Yes, you know it. We're continuing our best of In the Thick series with a live show that we recorded in 2018, pre-pandemic, people. It was a conversation with David Luis Suave Gonzalez, the artist, the former juvenile lifer, prison reform activist, who's the star of our Pulitzer Prize-winning Futuro Studios podcast, Suave. And we're going to revisit this iconic live show where Suave tells his story of being a juvenile lifer in prison for 31 years. Wow. And I got to share my experience of reporting on Suave for basically, at that point, had been more than 25 years. This is also one of my favorite in the thicks of the last seven years because you were with Suave in Chicago at this live event. And at the time of that recording, it had been only days since Suave had been released from prison. Yeah. And you could feel the emotion in the room as you both recounted the journey that led to that moment. I just loved being on stage in Chicago with Suave and Julio and with Nicole producing. It was it was a dream come true yeah. for all of us. And Suave was just beaming. And this live show wouldn't have been possible without Nicole Rothwell, mm-hmm. our former lead producer, who's now a rock star senior producer at Futuro Studios, also part of Futuro Media. So as we were talking to about what shows to feature from the last seven years. We also wanted to get people and producers that worked on the show for the last seven years. And Nicole sent us a very sweet message to celebrate In The Thick's achievements. And she talked about her experience producing this live conversation with Suave in Chicago, which at the time was Nicole's very first live show. Looking back, I really feel so humbled that I got to produce this live show. It was... In a way, it was my introduction to Futuro, ITT, Suave, and honestly, the power of shaking up the status quo in journalism. This is the way Maria Hinojosa has set the tone for all of us journalists at Futuro. And it showed me I could bring my full self to storytelling. It shows how we can bring our full humanity to storytelling, that journalism can be done with tears, laughter, and heart. Now, I just want to say what Nicole shared. Once we started doing other live shows after, I mean, all I can think about is Nicole Rothwell, like in charge. Oh, yeah. With the live shows. She was meant to do live shows. Mm-hmm. And this was the first one that she did. And so much has happened since we released this episode in 2018. For one, the podcast Suave eh, just won a Pulitzer Prize. Mm hmm. Making history for Futuro Media. You know, it doesn't end there, Julio. We can't reveal much right now on this, but Suave and I are working on a second season of the Suave podcast. It's part of the reason why I've been away, but you're going to hear more about that coming up. Yeah, there's so much more amazing things that are happening with Suave, the series, the podcast, Mm -hmm. the story. It's going to be incredible. But for now, let's continue with the best of In the Thick. So enjoy this episode from May 7th, 2018. We was having meetings with top-notch politicians in the city. And they all knew. I knew Maria and the horse. 
Welcome to In The Thick. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And yo, we got something special for you today. <laughs> yes, we do. An In The Thick exclusive. Wow. So last week, Julio and I did a series of live shows in Chicago at DePaul University, parentheses, where I'm a visiting scholar. And the theme was all about Latinos and mass incarceration and immigration and kind of intersectionality of those. All you In The Thick fans that came... Uh, we love you. For I know. Up. And it was in the middle of the day. Yes. It was really amazing. So today, we're going to share the first of those three panels. And it's a pretty intimate conversation. Mm. It's a story that basically I've been covering for 25 years. We had this conversation with Luis Suave Gonzalez, who's a prison reform activist, and he's a former lifer. Right. He got out at the end of November, and this was his second ever plane trip <laughs> in his life. So here's the conversation we had in front of a live audience at DePaul with Suave Gonzalez. All right! Yeah! Whoa! Welcome to a live recording of In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. We're here to talk about a very, very serious issue. We're going to do it in a kind of beautiful and miraculous way. We want to welcome to this stage Luis Suave Gonzalez. He is a former juvenile lifer. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole when he was a juvenile. He just got out, I don't know how many days ago, but it's still days. And uh, he is now a prison reform activist, and we have been reporting about him. I have known him for over 25 years. Welcome to the stage, Suave! Suave! So, Maria. Yes, sir. So I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. I know, I get to put away my script. I am going to interview Suave and Maria because this is a really personal story for the two of you guys. And I want to learn more about you guys. You okay, man? Yeah? Oh. It's all right. With, with Suave, it's all good. <laughs> you want to say something? You good? All right. Well, for those of you at home, um, basically, Suave just broke down in tears. It's 1993 when we met. Suave was in prison. At that point, he had been in prison not even, uh, I guess, eight years by then. And um, Suave was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Mm. So that was it. And during these 20-something years, we spoke a lot. Yeah. A lot. He would call me. There were years when he wouldn't call because he was in the hole, the special housing unit in solitary. But here's the thing. You would think, well, Suave was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Obviously, he would get on the phone and he would cry with you a lot. No. Suave cried on the phone twice. Both times I remember very clearly. Mm -hmm. So the fact that now he's out and he can cry on stage is actually a really profound statement about who he is as a human being and where he is in life. Yeah. So I'm going to ask the first question, Suave. Tell me the story of how, how Maria Hinojosa came into your life. In 1993, I was in solitary confinement at SCI Gratisville. That's the sixth largest penitentiary in America. And um, I came out the hole, and an older prisoner gave me a radio. Because, you know, I was into everything in the prison. I was into robbing people's cells. And he said, listen, somebody's going to hurt you. I'm going to get here, give you a radio. So I took the radio, plugged it in. It was only one station. That was WHYY. I'm not promoting it. <laughs> but nice plug, which is Philadelphia. That, that was the station that Maria was on. 
Yeah. So I put it on. It was like 3.30 in the afternoon. And I'm like, oh, shit, they got a Latina on the radio. <laughs> and it was Maria. So I went back and told the guys, we need to get her up here. Because I was hearing her every day. It was like a half hour show, I remember. So this other guy, he was like the prison teacher. He graduated like 27 Latinos with GED that year. So they gave him the chance to bring the guest speaker. I said, you got to get Maria up here. You got to get her up here. So somehow they got her up, but they told me I couldn't go to the graduation. I wasn't graduating, you know, you in the way. So I said, all right, it's cool. I'm, I'm doing time in a corrupt jail. Seriously. There's nowhere in the world I can't get into a graduation. So they brought Maria in, and I paid the guard. I can say that now, I'm free. <laughs> and he let me in. And I sat in the same bench where Maria was speaking. And Maria was speaking about, I remember that day about how she came to New York, graduated, and about Mumia, when they banned his takes from WHYY. So when, I was, when she was done, I said, I'm from New York, and what can I do? And Maria just looked at me and said, you could be the voice for the voiceless. And that what inspired me to change my life. Them simple words. So, so Maria, what do you remember of that meeting? First of all, I was really happy to be asked to speak at a prison because as a journalist, it's important for us to be able to go inside of prisons. I have been in and out of prisons since I was a young adult, not because I was arrested, but because I was visiting family or friends or reporting. So being in a prison to me was actually something that was a part of who I was. And then I gave a speech. I remember walking into Greaterford. My husband came with me and um, it was a very, it's not like going to Greaterford now. Then when I walked in, I really felt like all eyes were on me and the daggers were out and people were kind of eating me alive. But still, um, I went into the auditorium and I presented and there was a lot of love in the auditorium. People were graduating from barber school or from GED or from mm -hmm. college programs. And to be honest with you, there were many people who came up to me afterwards and many of them were lifers. So Suave came to me and I remember Suave took a moment just kind of to say, but what can I do? There were other people who wanted to talk about their story, but Suave's actual question was like, so what can I do? I'm going to be in here for life. And I was like, well, you can be my source. You can be a source. You can be the source, <laughs> right? You need to connect us and tell us what's happening. Mm -hmm. I think for Suave, that moment was much more transformative. And it just goes to show, because, you know, I have said that to many people, probably thousands of times, right? But you never know when four or five words can literally change someone's life. And then after that, we stayed in touch. Yeah. Suave wrote me letters. Then I went back to report, and I interviewed Suave officially for a piece about jail as a rite of passage. So so we're going to get into that some more. And, but before, Suave, you, you want to talk a little bit about your story and like how you became a lifer and like what happened or you feel like whatever you want to share. I'm originally from New York, the South Bronx. And, South um, Bronx, South, yeah, South Bronx, South Bronx, South, and, um, South Bronx. My mother moved from the South Bronx to North Philadelphia because she wanted a better life. And all she did was really put us in a this place called the Badlands in North Philly, which is the heart of the drugs, everything. And I got caught up in the street. 
And then one night, we went out, me and a couple other guys. We tried to rob somebody, and a young man was shot over a jacket. I went to jail. I didn't tell on nobody, because at that time, I believed in the cold of the streets. And my co-defendant got a deal. I went to trial, and I got convicted. Because in the state of Pennsylvania, when you go to trial and you don't take a deal, you get the maximum sentence. If I have known then what I know today, I probably would have never been a lifer. And I say that because the DA was throwing a deal out of five years. Okay, that's the first time I'm hearing that. But because I couldn't read or write, I neglected and got life in prison. So again, you know, if you know anything, if you have a relationship with people who are serving time, you actually don't spend a lot of your time when you're on the phone talking about the case and what happened. So even the time that Suave and I were conversing over the years, we did not spend a lot of time unless I was reporting. So I remember one time when Suave called, I was at home and for whatever reason that particular conversation I said pero que paso suave like he said to me you know my co-defendant is out I was like pero como puede ser that he's out and you're in I said what happened so I said well he took the plea and I said suave did they offer you a plea and he said yeah and I said but why didn't you take it and he said because I was illiterate I couldn't read or write and so the thought of you know, a 17-year-old saying, but I didn't do it, so if I go to trial, I know I'm going to be found not guilty. I mean, that's how 17-year-olds think, right? Well, I didn't do it. I know they're going to find me not guilty. And it wasn't until that moment, many, many years in, that I realized, and it's only now that I realized that it was a five-year deal. So I don't know how, knowing that that was so close, that you don't spend 30 and a half years in prison and not come out with rencor, with anger. But Mm -hmm. as you see, Suave, there's... Not a lot of anger right now. Yeah, and you're 17 years old. You think you'd, get, you'd beat it, and then all of a sudden, when it hit you, what, like when you realized, like, well, I'm here nine, forever. The day I got convicted, yeah. <laughs> I realized that. But in 1993, when I met Maria, I made a promise to myself and to my mother. And I told myself, I'm going to be out of jail by the time I'm 50. So I remember Maria sent me a box of books and magazines. I couldn't read none of them. And that box was her book. So I pay another inmate to read a book to the point where I memorized the whole book. Wow. And when I learned how to read and write, I read the whole book. I used it for my college course. So they put me in the hole for five years for fighting with a guard. So in the hole, another inmate showed me how to read and write. And I told him, when I come out, I'm going to go get my GED. I tried seven times, and, but then I passed. And, um, and I, I, I got involved with all the prison politics to the point where the prison used to hate me. Like, oh, my God, here, go, here comes this guy again. Why'd they hate you? Because I was involved with everything. I was like the mayor of the Latinos. <laughs> I was like the mayor of the Latinos. Any little issue, I complained about it. But what I did, I mastered the DOC policies to the point where I knew what they was doing was messed up. And some of the stuff they was doing was out of pocket. They wasn't doing it at me. 
Because they knew for one thing, they, had, they already had me labeled as, this guy is crazy, this guy likes to fight. There was no doubt about that. But then I said, if I keep fighting, they're going to put me in a hole. Mm. So I was fighting them with their policies. I was fighting them with the law. I learned the law. You know, there were years in which there were no phone calls from Suave. You were at the Pennsylvania prison, you talked, and then you'd start communicating, and then for five years, you didn't hear from her? Did you try to write to her? I mean, I would always send Christmas cards, but five years in solitary confinement. Again, I guess when we're thinking about who we are as a society and that we're prepared to put somebody, a human being, for five years into solitary confinement. Yeah. Now, the flip side of that story, right, the hopeful side is that Suave is here. He survived five years of, yeah. of okay. solitary yeah. confinement. But I, which is great. Yes. Yeah. And I want to I wanna just keep doing the timeline because so then you guys reconnected and then you started reporting for Latino USA about Suave's story. That's how I learned Suave. So take me to when you were out of the hole until then. Like what happened during that relationship once you started reconnecting Suave and Maria? And like, I'm not sure if I've said this to Suave or not, but people talk about a relationship. Yeah. No, I really didn't have a relationship with Suave. It was a one way. So it was, uh, to me, I say an experience of a friendship because I could never call him, but Suave was able to call me whenever he would call. Yeah. And I just, and then it was like listening, you know, and just being there and, but unpredictable. I never knew when Suave would call or when he would stop calling for months. When did you get back and start calling her? Well, let me say this. By no mean, I want to sit here and say that five years in the hole was like, and the prison system, that's nothing. You, in Pennsylvania, you have people that's been in the hole 25, 30, 35 years. So I drew inspiration from them guys that taught me, you know, how to survive the art, what we call the art of war in prison. What I learned from Maria from listening to her show is you got to bring your top guns. So when I got involved in the prison politics, I made it my business to connect with as many politicians in the city. Damn. So we was having meetings with state reps. We was having meetings with DAs. We was having meetings with top-notch politicians in the city of Philadelphia. And they all knew I knew Maria and the horse. <laughs> <laughs> when the prison system know that you got a journalist that don't have a problem exposing you, they're going to leave you the heck alone. They will leave you I alone. I've never heard this either. This is all new to me. I'm like, what? They will leave you alone. So when you're involved in those kind of politics in prison, you, you got to make a decision. I made the decision when I got involved that I don't care about visits. I don't care about having a TV or radio or none of the prison stuff they give you to keep you calm. That don't matter to me. Commissary, nothing matters to me. The only thing that was in my mind was freedom. And that's how I live my life. That's why the prison understood, like, this dude don't care. <laughs> right? For the last 25 years, I can really say that the only real connection I had to the world was Maria and Ahosa. Well, The only real connection. Because I do have a family. They came up and visit once in a while. But to me, it was like, I don't care if you come or you don't. Because you can't help me. You can't get my voice out to the masses. So my only real relationship, if I go back to my old Christmas cards for the last maybe 20 years, they're all Maria. Well, and both the kids. Of her kids. <laughs> the kids. I seen both of her kids I've seen since some they were babies. I said we said the babies. Grown yeah. in pictures. 
And I, I got I'm them old, all. I'm old school with the Christmas cards, guys. And I got them all. <laughs> you're it's like obviously old, revealed you, now. You're like a white suburban lady when it comes to the Christmas cards. <laughs> I'm exactly like a little Mexican lady on the south side of Chicago named Berta Hinojosa. Oh! <laughs> She's the one who taught me about sending tarjetas de Navidad. The one thing the administration understood that, and that everybody in the prison watched CNN and listened to NPR. Everybody. I completed my degree in prison listening to Maria's shows. Because we ain't had no internet, we ain't had no resource center. So all my papers, I used to listen to her shows on Sundays and go back and just write papers. Hi, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of Latino USA. We all love great stories. And great stories are what we pride ourselves in delivering to you every week. Latino USA presents a mix of reporting on culture and politics, diverse voices, and coverage of current and emerging issues, featuring stories from the heart, stories that will make you think and maybe even inspire you. Listen to Latino USA on your favorite podcast app from PRX. By the way, Suave, you got a BA yes. from Villanova University. Yes. How many years? Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Hold the applause. How many years did it take you to get your BA from Villanova? 16. Now you can applaud. Wow. All right. Little by little. Right. So little, little by, by little. little. This is the beautiful side of a story that actually impacts our audience directly because our audience is mostly students a very diverse Chicago group of people, just like what our country actually looks like. And I know many of the students who have dreams of doing things, and they're just like, oh, but it feels like so far away. Well, at some point along the line, human rights activists and justice activists realize that sentencing a juvenile to life without parole when they're under 18 is inhuman. They were going to have to challenge all the way up to the Supreme Court, but they still believe that they could do it. Right. And at the same time, there were scientists across the country who were studying the human brain and realizing that the adolescent brain is a particular brain. If you're under 26, you still have an adolescent brain. It is different than my brain. My brain, I think, is still adolescent, but I'm 48, but continue. <laughs> Way to take me down. But basically, an adolescent... So, so you basically had scientists who were like researching this, and between the justice advocates and the scientists, they converge on the fact that it is inhuman to do this. They had a scientific basis. Then that actually ends up in the Supreme Court. So all of you who have dreams that seem like completely impossible and so unattainable, actually just don't give up because it can, in fact, end right. like this. And we need you to not give up. But basically, that leads us to now all of a sudden, Suave's case, it's like, wait, but I never said this to you. I did not believe that this you would did. happen. I remember. I you did, did say it. You did. I oh, did. you just got, you did. You got fact checked by Suave. In, in 2012, <laughs> I remember I called Marie in 2012 when Miller versus Alabama, I remember. Keep it, keep it. I called Maria. I told Maria that came down with Miller versus Alabama. And Maria said, uh, how do that affect you? And I said, Maria, that means I could be out. She said, Suave, for the first time in all these years that Maria ever 
advised me to go for commentation. She said, Suave, why don't you go for a commentation? And like I, a pardon kind yeah, of Like a pardon. Yeah. And I told Maria, Maria, I'm in a racist state. Because in the state of Pennsylvania, the last Latino that ever had their life sentence commuted was in 1965. I said, they're not going to pick me. Wow. And Maria was like, who knows? And I was kind of hurt. I was like, dang, the only person that believed in me telling me that. But when I called back, she said, I had my people study the case. I remember that conversation. She said, there is a possibility. And we got it in 2012. We got the decision. But in Pennsylvania, the DA said, it's not retroactive. It don't apply to you. And I gathered all the guys in the prison, and we said, we got to get prepared. We, we, we going to win this. And they was like, oh, here we go. That's why we're crazy again. He's Because he's, I was always talking about going home. Like, yeah. you going home. I'm going home. I said, I'm, I told one guy I'm going home in December. I just ain't told him what year. <laughs> I just ain't told him what year. So in 2012, we began, some of us in the prison, the socially conscious, we began connecting with the whole city. You know, we got to gather the people. And um, the DOC caught on to it. So now they want to prepare you. They want to give you an ID. They want to make sure you prepare. But they were still not believing that you getting out. I was like, you going to believe them or you going to believe me? Well, you know, most of our people, we socially so messed up that we believe the same people that's keeping us oppressed. We really, we, we do that in the prison system. So I told my crew. The mayor, the mayor. Juvenile lifers. Yeah. Man, we got to get prepared. Because when that day come, if you're not prepared, you're going to be left behind. And we fought it. We should have been out of jail in 2012. It took five years to take it back to the Supreme Court for them to rule. But I want to say this, and I told my I want to say this. If it wasn't for somebody from Chicago, Barack Obama, y'all could clap for that. Y'all could clap for that. If it wasn't for him that assigned it, Sonia Sotomayor and Justin Aline Kagan to the Supreme Court, juvenile lifers across the United States would not be out. Because those two was the two descending votes that said, no, juvenile lifers must be let out of jail. So that, so let me ask you, tell me about when you heard about it. I knew I was coming out. Okay. Because I always believed it. So I wrote this wonderful lawyer and he was a Villanova professor. And I told him, listen, I ain't got no money, but I'm willing to send you my little 19 cents that I make an hour if you help me out. He wrote back. He said, don't worry about it. I'm your lawyer. And he kept my case. Wow. So when the Supreme Court ruled that it was retroactive, he wrote me and he said, I'm walking you out the prison. He said, if I come back to see you on Thursday, we got the deal. If I don't come back, that means we ain't got the deal. Yeah. I was waiting and the clock was ticking. When they said Gonzalez, I came out myself without my shoes. No lie. I forgot to put my shoes on. And the guys was like, what, you smoking? I'm like, no. <laughs> I went to the visit. He said, we got the deal. You coming home. So now I'm counting my days. I was not going to believe it until I actually saw Suave walking out of that place to me. And I was very worried also. I would tell him towards the end, I was like, Suave, you just need to be really calm. Try not to interact with anybody. I thought that somebody was going to try to mess with him, try to instigate an argument with him. I've never said this before. I thought he could be killed because it's a prison 
Um, and Suave was a very, very, very big voice and, um, you know, accomplished a lot. So I really was not convinced until he finally walked out. But to me, it didn't seem real to July 6th when I went to court. And um, the judge said, you set the bars this high. You know, I really didn't. I hate that type of language. When yeah. judges start talking that language, you set the bars high, this high. That means that they're going to use your case to justify denying somebody else. Yeah. I had to put my prison record out. Most of the write-ups I got, I got in the early 80s, early 90s. I ain't had a write-up in 20-something years. So I put out my prison record, my degrees, and everything else I completed. Because most of the programs that was in the prison, prison is created. Most of the programs running the DOC are created by lifers. Can I just say, by the way, so Suave helped to create multiple programs within the prison. He created a program where they were raising funds from the prisoners inside to create a scholarship to give to a young person on the outside yeah. to help them pay for college. And that's part of what, and Latino USA did that story. You want Latino USA, like, but, um, but I have a question before yeah. we turn it over to this amazing audience and it's actually directed at you because we've had this conversation because it's, this is pretty much the first time you guys have been very public about your friendship. You as a journalist, Maria, did you ever think you stopped being a journalist and being a friend, like more of a friend to Suave? Have you ever questioned yourself as a journalist to be like, am I crossing the, whatever the line is, like as a journalist, ethically or anything? Like what, what goes through your mind with all this? I've always continued to see Suave up until the time that he got out. Really, it was a journalistic endeavor in many ways. I think that now what's happened is, is that, you know, Suave is out of prison, right? So our phone calls are now not being recorded unless we're recording them. Um, and sometimes I choose not to record a conversation with Suave. But other than that, we now have a very different kind of relationship that I would say now since he's gotten out has become perhaps a little bit more challenging mm. Because journalists are supposed to re remain with a certain kind of distance. But at the same time, I believe that, to be honest with you, if I was a white male and I was having this experience with Suave and I was going to do a podcast and I was going to do a television series and I was going to make a movie, absolutely no one would be questioning my journalistic ethics. That's a big one. I I'm so glad I asked this question. This is great. But because I am a woman of color, Latina, journalist who always is reporting about things that others, then there is somehow perceived to be an agenda. And frankly, the only agenda here is to tell a story that's kind of incredible. Yeah. Right? And to be very transparent about that. I mean, I think it's probably hard for Suave to hear when I say it was not exactly a relationship when you were in prison for 30 years. It was an experience. But like I said, I wasn't calling Suave and saying, one time, yes, three years ago, I, you know, my father had died, my best friend had died, my cousin had died, and I was probably, and I probably cried. Did I cry? I may have cried. I tried never to do that, but I probably kind of just, you know, was like, it's really rough. I'm having a really hard time. And other than that, I was not really sharing mm. more what was happening on my end. And to my surprise and then really to my own humility, and I thank Suave for that. I received a card in the mail signed by, I don't know, like 20, 
30 guys. Uh, and the card was kind of like, you know, a very traditional kind of um, Hallmark card. And from, it was from... signed by Suave and several other lifers telling me to keep my hopes up. <laughs> right. So that's when I was like, you got this. You know, and I remember putting that little card right there because I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep my hopes up. I am not serving life in prison. In many ways, Suave became that kind of Buddha, right? Because like I would be out here like, oh, whatever, whatever. And he's just like, it's all right. It's all right. It's going to be okay. It's all good. What Mariano know is that I always knew that I was talking to a journalist. Always. Yeah. I was good with it because I knew that deep down she had my best interests. Mm. And she wasn't going to tell the story in a sensationalized way just to get a storyline out. It's true. And I knew that even though she's a journalist, there was a possibility that if I get out, we could be friends. And on November 20th, it was her, my brother, and my attorney waiting for me in the front gate. Wow. wow. I'm, I'm floored by, by this conversation, so this is why... Co-hosts need each other. I appreciate it. We open it up to you guys and take a couple of questions for Suave and Maria. Um, my name is Diana. Um, really quickly for Suave, obviously your story is heartwarming and, and amazing and inspiring, but it's one of many. And like you said, you still have people that are there going through that. What kind of hope or, you know, what can we see in the future to help those that are still going through that? I mean, I think people need to realize that juvenile life is... For some of us, it's our first mistake. Juvenile life is, are not monsters. You know, we made a mistake when we was kids. We went to jail 30, 40 years, and now we out. Today, I work in the community. I'm the executive director of a resource center. And I've only been home five months. What? <laughs> He's a boss. But, He's got a staff. But that's only possible because... The community I work for gave me that chance. And I think the people need to give people returning home a chance. Because if you don't get them a chance, man, the possibility are they're going to go back to prison. We need, as a community, to support returning citizens a little more. With jobs, homes, even just a mentor. Somebody that you could call at nighttime, look, I'm going through this. Because I'm still learning. Yeah. We have another question for Suave or Maria. Hi there. My name is Esther. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I want to really kind of wrap this back up into this idea of mass incarceration. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, as uh, former FBI director James Comey was going around doing press for his book, he got into a conversation with somebody about the fact that he had had a discussion with President Obama about mass incarceration and he said that he had sort of tried to convince the former president that that really wasn't the right term because the people who are going into these systems, they've had a fair trial and they've gone through the system and justice has been served. And I think based on your comments about how, you know, you didn't take your plea deal, you have a viewpoint on that. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think of the term mass incarceration. Well, mass incarceration equals Latinos and blacks and poor whites. It's that simple. There is no such thing as a fair trial. There is no such thing as a jury of your peers. When I went to trial, I saw my lawyer for one day. My mother gave him $20,000 cash. And the only thing he told me was, 
this is water under a bridge. We got this. And when I got convicted, he told the judge, I no longer want to be his lawyer because my mother said, I'm not going to pay you the rest of the money. So there is no fair trial. Mass incarceration is us. And if we're going to end mass incarceration, it start with us. It start with the brothers coming out the penitentiary and doing the right thing. There is no excuse for anyone that's in the penitentiary to come out and not do the right thing. We got to divide the accountability all ways. I do what I do today, and I live my life the way I live it today because I owe it to the brothers in there. Because if I mess up, it would affect at least 500 juvenile lifers. My freedom is in my hands, not in Maria's hands, not in my fiance's hand, and nobody's hands. I'm the only one that could take myself back to prison, and I refuse to do that. Yeah, thank you. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Yeah. I just want to say thank you to Luis Suave Gonzalez for joining us, for joining Julio and me on In the Thick. It's been great to have you on the show, Luis. Suave Gonzalez. <laughs> I, I never leave. call him Luis. I want to say to Maria, thank you. And when I get married, you're going to be the flower girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this live recording of In the Thick. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, that live audience was fabulous, wasn't it? <laughs> Great experience. I loved every minute of it. Every, every single yeah. minute of it. So, um, you know, and stay tuned for more about what we're calling now the Suave Project as we take off. Uh, and I, I just want to give a series of thank yous for, for these live events that we did. Um, first of all, to uh, DePaul University and Lourdes Torres, who is the department chair um, of the Latino and Latin American Studies Department, and Lisa Avila, uh, who is, you know, the kick-ass. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. They're both amazing. LT uh, and Lisa, amazing we love Lisa you. We love you. From the Center for Latino Research, which is part of the department. I also want to thank our recording engineers, Mike Lust and Blake Trushka and his audiovisual team. Also to WBEZ and Shelly Steffens and to our amazing associate producer, Nicole Rothwell. Woo! <laughs> Who's been Who just fabulous. like killed it, just killed it. Yep. And to our amazing dear Julio, who was just, you, thank you for being such a great interviewer. Oh my God, that makes me feel so good. I, you know, I love that. I love when I can turn the tables and ask you those questions. It was great. Thank you so much. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And remember, everybody, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because it really, 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 really helps. Also, follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on Facebook. And this week, tell your best friends to listen. Our producer is Stephanie LeBeau. Our associate producer is Nicole Rothwell. Futuro Media's executive director is Erica Dilde. Our theme music is Comencemos by Jungle Fire. The music that you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kep and ZZK Records. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to In the Thick. Ciao. Nos vemos. <laughs> Let's do that again. We've had too good of a time in Chicago. You want to do that again? The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.